Hour number two of Canuck Central. Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah here in the Kintec studio. Just spoke with uh, Nick Kiprios. There was you know, some interesting discussion on uh, the future of the Canucks and how they continue to try and work with some of their building processes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he mentioned Brock Besser being on the trade block in the past and with Besser off to a good start. You know, how does that sort of change uh, the conversation around Besser? Uh, can he become more movable as the Canucks try to maybe uh, work the roster better in other areas? Well, preface this by saying these types of decisions are going to most likely be off-season decisions. And the reality you have to think about is Brock Besser is going to be 27 when his contract, or 28 when he signs his next contract. So what that means is you have to think long and hard if that's a guy you're actually paying for five or six more years into his late mid to late 30s, right? So it's like it's a big decision coming up. And maybe one they don't really want to make. And if his value is better, the offseason is a better time for you to do that. But I think in general, the way we have to look at how this management team is going to approach this organ- this group of players, they believe in the guys they believe in. And not to say they don't believe in other guys and maybe Besser falls in that or not, but it's they're very open to improving this team and making hard decisions. And I don't think whether they're in a playoff spot or not or however good they are or not is going to get in the way of them doing something that could be, you know, pretty bold if that opportunity comes available to them. So I think it's just an interesting thing to keep in mind and maybe not so much this year because moving term is so hard. We see it, mm-hmm. right? Even a guy who has one more year left on his deal is more of an offseason thing. But I, I don't think these guys are closed off at all to doing big and drastic things if they're able. Uh, and uh, we'll see how that plays out as the season goes on. We know uh, the situation with Connor Garland is still up in the air. They've got some expiring deals that uh, leave you to wonder if they're going to move an Anthony Beauvillier or Tyler Myers as the season goes on. Uh, we'll have to see how those things play out. Bringing in our next guest, it is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Thanks for this, Harm. Uh, there's been a lot of positives through the first six games of the season. We haven't, uh, we haven't said that in a while about the Canucks and the way they've started most recent seasons. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a nice change of pace, guys, isn't yeah. it? Instead <laughs> of having players only meetings after like the third game of the regular season. Well, I saw the um, Chicago Bulls did the Canucks one better. They they had a players only meeting after one bad game, so you know could be worse. Wow, that's impressive. Broke, <laughs> broke a record there for sure. But no, seriously, I mean, for the Canucks to it's not just the results, right? The wins that they've picked up, but it feels like towards the tail end of this road trip. The foundation of their game really seems to be building and in, in coming to, together when you look at how much better they've been controlling play uh, since that uh, stinker of a game in Philly where they were better against Tampa Bay. Um, their their response against Florida was even better. And then against Nashville most recently, uh, that was probably their most complete performance outside of the first, the first game where they thumped the Oilers. They were better connected on breakouts. Uh, they just felt in control the entire time, even even in the third period when they were defending the lead. Um, it, it it didn't feel like they were sort of totally overwhelmed. You didn't feel too nervous about the outcome there. And we're we're at the point now where it's not just like through the first few games, it felt like okay, they've gotten some wins, but they've been a little bit reliant on their stars to deliver and mm-hmm. rock solid goaltending. But now you're seeing other. Um, other players step up as well. I mean, Mikheyev coming back has been really helpful and sort of rejuvenating that top line. I think the last couple of games, we've seen a market improvement from Andre Kuzmenko at 5-on-5. Five five. 
Um, Di Giuseppe, the last couple of games, has started to not only, you know, his his forechecking and defensive play has, has been consistent throughout, but the last couple of games he's been chipping in with, with some important offense. Nils Hoagliner getting on the board um, against Nashville. Uh, it's it, it seems like the the team is really starting to come together a little bit, and and absolutely, I, I mean, even you look at the penalty kill, even right, and special mm-hmm. teams as a whole, they're sitting third in the NHL with their power play clicking at thirty five percent, and the PK is seventeenth, right around league average, which is really encouraging because they played obviously Edmonton back to back and in Tampa some lethal power plays. So um, there's been a lot to like with the Canucks to start so far. There is, and I think what you kind of nailed, uh, you um, you touched on to me is is what's been most encouraging is that they don't look like they're going to fall apart even when they're under duress. They're actually maintaining. It reminds me a bit more of how they defended well in 2019-2020. They had to spend a lot of time in their own zone, but generally they defended well in their own zone. They weren't falling apart. Transition, there was obviously an issue, and they had their faults, but they were good on special teams. They got good goaltending, and they were good in, in with in-zone defending, generally speaking. What I'm interested in is what the coaches talked about in terms of their breakouts, because that's going to be the big key here, here, Harm. If they can do more of what they did against the Preds and keep building on that, and if you can defend well and you can have good breakouts, well, I think that's the pathway to being decent five-on-five. Absolutely. And I remember sort of at points when talk at first came, um, came in last season, in the last 30 games or so, there were some games, like there's one against the Stars that really stood out to me, where it felt like they were better connected. It felt like the centermen were doing a a better job of supporting the defensemen in terms of how deep they were coming in the defensive zone to become available. Uh, the wingers were working really hard to be deep enough in the defensive zone such that the angle for the defensemen making that pass was um, was easier because a lot of times when we speak about the club's breakout issues over the last number of years, we focused rightly on the defensemen and, and how they and how they haven't been able to move the puck that I feel like we've forgotten just how important a role the the wingers and centermen play in that too it's not just breaking the puck out isn't just on the defensemen and I think especially with this personnel that you have on the back end where you're still not the most mobile back mobile back end outside of Hughes and, and Hronik to me it is really going to come down to the habits of your forwards and providing maximum support because I thought they were much better in that area in Nashville, and you and you clearly saw um, the results of that uh, bear out. Well, it, it feels like um, when Hughes and Hronik aren't on the ice, um, you know, like the, Hughes and Hronik have played the majority of their minutes with the Miller line, and uh, if they're not out there, then I, I, you know Pedersen is is playing a big role in in helping break the puck out, and they're they're finding ways to to help the defensemen break the puck out, and it's. It's it's gotten better each game. It seems like, yeah, and, and that's part of what structure and reliability and knowing where other guys are going to be on the ice, what routes they're going to take. That's where those types of um, sort of tendencies, predictability, teammates being able to trust each other. That's that's where it's such a huge difference. I mean, um, even when you look at for instance, how the the Miller line has been transitioning when they've been on the ice. And, and of course, it, it obviously helps sharing that much time with uh, with Hughes and Hronik. But so I remember having a conversation with JT on the road in, in Edmonton, and we all remember sort of um, how, how how much more difficult it had been for his line transitioning the year before. And, and I sort of asked him, asked him about that. 
about the breakouts, about the offensive entries. Um, and he sort of said that, first of all, I, I think from his perspective, the fact that the team isn't having to chase games as much, um, it feels like they're not having to force things and take as many sort of risks, even sort of once they exit the, new, uh, the defensive zone, um, just in also being able to transport it more safely in the neutral zone and not having those turnovers um, at the offensive sort of blue line where the other team can immediately counter attack and, and create odd man rushes. Um, that's a, a, another area where not just for the Miller line, but for the team as a whole, it, it feels like they um, have been sort of maturing. They're not giving the puck away and shooting themselves in the foot. And, and of course, there have been situations where you have heavy forechecking teams and, and you're under duress and it, and it doesn't look pretty. Um, but that's where the difference between a team that can bend but doesn't break is that they don't shoot themselves in the foot. They don't um, compound the, you know, the pressure they're facing by then making their own um, reckless mistakes. And it feels like they've cut down on those types of mistakes and um, in turnovers, especially sort of compared to last season. Now, in terms of how some of these individual players are performing, especially a guy we've been looking at quite a bit since they acquired him last year and only got a small sample, Philip Heronik, what are you seeing from his game specifically? And how do you think he is fitting in, especially with Quinn? Yeah, I think in terms of defensive play, we've certainly, I think, seen him maintain some of the improvements away from the puck. Uh, I, I can remember even from the first couple of games uh, against Edmonton, some key plays on, on the rush where it looked like the McDavid line was um, in a threatening position coming at the Canucks with speed. There was a bit of a, there would be a bit of a breakdown and Hronik was sort of there to clean things up, to deny a pass. And, and it feels like um, in terms of his overall positioning and reads, he's been really reliable defensively. I think through the early going it's taken him a little bit of time to read off of Hughes a little bit. And, and I think he's improving in that area where the first few games, I thought that there were maybe some situations where uh, he like in the offensive zone, for, for example, seemed a bit too trigger happy from, uh, from the blue line. And I think he's become better at recognizing the spots where he, where he should be using his shot versus where he should just let Quinn do his magic. Um, and I also think that we've steadily started to see him, even when it comes to you know transition and making small little passes on the breakout, I think we're seeing him look more confident um, in that capacity as well. So it feels like he's improving game by game and that their chemistry um, is, is, is starting to build it. It really feels like that pair is, is, is really finding their stride lately. Yeah, and the, the bigger questions come behind that pair, right? And and Rick Tockett mentioned today he needs he needs more out of other guys so that he can lay off some of the minutes that, that Hughes and Hronik have, have taken so far this season. But, you know, we, we've seen Tyler Myers get demoted, which we haven't seen much of in his uh, four-plus years as a Vancouver Canuck. Uh, how do you feel the deployment has worked so far on defense? Yeah, I think it's going to continue to be a work in progress because it's it's abundantly clear based off his form through the early going that you can't really, when you have a healthy blue line, have Tyler Myers in your top four. Um, but that still leaves you without, um, you know, like Mark Friedman, I'm not expecting him to hold down top four minutes necessarily for, for the rest of um, the season. So 
I almost wonder if you're going to continue to sort of see experiments. And I, and I wonder if at some point, I know the coaching staff has a clear sort of preference for, for going lefty righty, but I, I still wonder at some point, if you just have to commit to having three, three lefties in your top four and, and shifting one of uh, Kohler, Hironic or Kohler, Susie to, um, to the right side in, uh, uh, in, in the top four. And, and perhaps that means, sort of bumping Heronic down and, um, and, and having him play with one of Susie or Cole and, and one of those guys, the remaining ones, plays with uh, Hughes. Because the other thing to keep in mind is when you have a defenseman struggling as much as Myers has been, it, it's not just a stress individually, it's a drag on who he's playing with. And that's where, uh, with Ian Cole, for example, it's funny because when he was paired with Heronic through uh, camp and preseason, uh, I was thinking, man, he looks so solid. Um, he looks so sturdy. He looks like such a, a strong sort of upgrade. And Cole's looked pretty good overall. But we've seen when he's been paired with Meyer, when he was paired with Myers earlier um, in the middle of that road trip, that he started to struggle a little bit, and that pair got hemmed in a lot. And um, so, I almost wonder if you're able to, you know, have a circumstance where again you have three lefties in the top four and and it, you, you might also end up with other defensemen in that top four benefiting from um, not having somebody in, in Meyer sort of dragging you down. Now, with the rest of the team, we talk about the back end, and obviously, once if they do address the back end by getting Ethan Bear, maybe that helps, and we'll see how long that takes to kind of come to fruition. It's still a ways away. But in terms of how the forwards are looking, we know the top six has, has been excellent and maybe even some room for improvement uh, still in the top six. But did they start f- to find a little bit of an answer in terms of the bottom six being manageable with having Garland play with Suter and getting a bit more on that fourth line with Hoaglander coming back in? Yeah, I like it as a bet for sure, especially because Garland through the second half of, of last season when he really st- by five on five offense it was it was in the bottom six and uh, that's where like Garland's such a unique player where he's pretty puck dominant and he wants possession he wants to make plays and I think part of the reason why he sometimes for example struggled struggled when he plays with Pedersen and Kuzmenko on the top line is just because it's like all three players like having the puck on their stick and um and, and it's like you need a different sort of um, dimension there. Whereas in the bottom six, you don't have that sort of offensive driver that demands puck, which means that Garland is free to sort of have as many touches as you want, hold on to it, make plays. Um, and he's not sort of restricted to playing a complementary role. Um, so that's, I think where Garland is, you know, again, found so much success down the stretch last season. And, and I'm hoping that he can pick up and, and sort of help um, obviously Suter and, and Joshua, who've been relatively quiet offensively. Um, and then Hoaglander coming in, I mean, it just feels like, especially with the resp- response he had um, against Nashville after obviously being healthy scratch before, um, he's got to stay in the lineup at this point. Um, you know, five points in, in six games. This, this bottom six um, needs secondary offense. And, and certainly they have the pieces on paper to, to, to get that production, but it qu- hasn't quite been there yet. And Hoaglander, I think his... Uh, production there is um, is massive, and and it's interesting to me that he's also done it in a way where you, you look at both of his um, 
goals, um, one of them um, against Edmonton, the most recent against Nashville, both of them tips um, right uh, right in front of um, right right in front of the the inside the the dirty areas and and that to me shows an evolution. That to me shows the the bigger picture of Hoaglander buying into the identity of being a fast, energetic bottom six uh, player who. Yeah, he's going to have to play hard. He's going to have to play on the inside. He he can't be uh, a perimeter sort of. I'm just going to be a skill guy. Um, and I like that. Even the way that he's manufacturing offense is in more of a sort of hard nosed uh, way. And, and I'm optimistic about um, him and him getting going and, and hopefully Garland providing uh, more of a consistent spark uh, for the third line moving forward. The uh, the JT Miller line, it's been uh, really good. Uh, a lot of nights it's been the Canucks' best line, at least from my perspective. Uh, has it developed into a quality shutdown line? Because they're taking a lot of toughs every night and still managing to have success. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's one of the biggest positives of this season. Uh, I remember sort of looking at the lineup and sort of thinking that Miller line is going to be the wild card because the potential is certainly there when you look at Miller, when you look at Besser. Um, but those guys have obviously sometimes been volatile in terms of their even strength play. And I think both guys have played to, to the best of their uh, potential on a lot of, uh, on a lot of sort of nights, they've been the line that's dragged the team into the fight um, that, you know, if, if they, if they're losing a bit of momentum, they respond with a heavy shift that, seems to get the Canucks back in it energy-wise. And, of course, Di Giuseppe um, as well. Not Again, it's interesting. After the fourth game, I think he had just one assist, and I was thinking to myself, he's been fantastic away from the puck. He's helped drive possession. But at some point, if, if you're going to stick in a top-six role, the offense has to come. And then, of course, uh, in the Florida game, he single-handedly has that uh, unbelievable play, hunting down ekman Larson. Um, drawing multiple Panthers players and, and setting up Kuzmenko for that huge goal, um, and then scoring a, a scoring game against Nashville. That's sort of exactly what you wanted to see out of him uh, in, in sort of developing into the, the perfect complementary piece. Um, and yeah, I feel a level of confidence in, in in knowing that I can, you know, trust the Canucks to use that line against anybody right now. Mm-hmm. Um, even Game One, making such a statement. Um, having one of the best shutdown performances that any line has had against the Connor McDavid line, just dominating possession. And I think it was three, three goals, four and zero head to head against McDavid, almost 10 minutes of five and five ice time. Um, they've been brilliant. And, and I think that's one of the most important positive storylines for this team so far. Yeah. And I think, at a higher scale on the top line in terms of what PDG does, you, Getting Ilya Mikheyev back has been a huge boost, I think, to Andre Kuzmenko's game in particular, but also what you were talking about before in terms of Garland, how he's limited if he's he has to take a you know tertiary role on a third line, but also he handles the puck a lot, which takes away from Kuzmenko and Pedersen. It just it's not just not a perfect fit in terms of maximizing the talents of each of those players. But it seems like Mikheyev is the perfect type of player to be on the line with Kuzmenko, and it's not just the Russian factor; it's just the way Kuzmenko plays and how he can impact the game without needing to have the puck on a stick a lot. It clearly opens up space for his teammates. Uh, absolutely. He brings a unique dimension in that way um, with his pace, with the size. He has such mm-hmm. a strong uh, off-the-puck game. Um, obviously, we know what he can do on the forecheck uh, in situations where um, 
uh, somebody is able to, a linemate is able to find him in the neutral zone, he has obviously the burst to be able to create rush opportunities, but also his ability to get open around the net, I think is huge because the way that Pedersen and Kuzmenko can handle the puck so proficiently in, um, in, in tight quarters, and what that does is it draws defenders. They're like magnets in that way. And and that's going to create space in other parts of the ice. And and that's where Mikheyev is, um, you know, I've been impressed even going back to last season when he was such an excellent fit, just his ability to, whether it's on the back door or the slot, uh, he just finds those open lanes and then Kuzmenko or or Pedersen are are able to, to find him there. And I think that's, exactly what you want and, and need and especially as Mikheyev continues to ramp back up and and feels 110 percent and and really gets going finds his stride shakes off the early rust from having missed so many games I think you're also going to see him add a lot of defensive value uh to that uh to that line as as well that's an element that he was such a defensive beast in Toronto playing in a third line checking role and I, I can't wait until we see that type of impact from, from Mikheyev as well. Uh, final thing, and uh, sort of circling back on, on defense, um, we, we've talked so much about Ethan Bear, and, and there's almost uh, a, a feeling of it's going to happen eventually where he comes back to, to Vancouver. Um, how do you think he would fit uh, with this, this new group of defense? I, I, th- I think he'd be fantastic. And it's not so much that but to me, I look at Ethan Bear and I go, on a true talent basis, on a good team, he's probably a third-pair defenseman. But considering the state of the right side after Hironic, that's such an upgrade, right? That's uh, a huge boost uh, compared to the level that Myers is playing at right now. Uh, it's a big boost uh, compared to Friedman and his limited track record. And it gives the coaching staff options in terms of how you could deploy him because uh, Bear he looked comfortable playing with you. So if, if you wanted to, to play um, Hughes and Bear together and slide Hronik down and have a more balanced top four, you could do that. Or you could also run, I, I also don't mind at all the stylistic fit of, of having Bear with uh, potentially with somebody like Ian Cole and having Cole sort of be the, be the steady um, veteran who can break up the cycle, helps in zone, um, covers in some of those specific areas that Bear's a little bit weak in, and Bear adds some of the dynamic uh, puck moving that when you look at, you know, you, you go back to last year, uh, and when Bear, when he wasn't with Hughes, he spent a lot of time with OEL. OEL played some of his best hockey when he had Ethan Bear's uh, mobility with him, and, and I think that could be, um, you know, alongside Cole now, obviously this year, Bear could sort of really help round out that top four in terms of the puck moving side of it and, and helping the blue line continue to transition uh, more cleanly. So I think it really would be uh, a notable improvement. Harm, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is uh, Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here on Canuck Central. It, it feels... Uh... We're gonna, Ethan Bear's getting a lot of talk right now, even though he's not playing hockey right now in uh, in Vancouver. But you know, it's just it's so obvious that the Canucks could could use another puck mover, as we talked about yesterday, and can easily use some some help on the right side. Even if you don't feel Ethan Bear is a long term solution for the Canucks on the right side, he's still an upgrade on what they might 
be using right now. And that's what it always comes down to is do you have options that are better than what you have currently in-house? And what is the price point for you to acquire that player? I'm not big on getting Ethan there when there were discussions this offseason about signing him to a long-term contract and giving him maybe, you know, some people said maybe give him, you know, $4 million or high three. You know, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go down that road paying him $4 million plus on a long-term deal. I want to see more before I do that. But if you can get him signed for under $2 million or around $2 million, prorated, whatever, a million, then it makes a lot of sense in terms of going after that type of player to come into your lineup. And he's a far better option than what you have. It's Yes, I'd in a perfect world, I'd like a better player, but he's better than what you have currently, and it's very hard to find these righty defensemen. And he's 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 a credible NHL defenseman. We saw that last year, and we did see that it worked with Quinn. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how and if that plays out. Of course, you know, cap space is, is <laughs> part of the question mark there. And uh, do they have a Garland deal that they'll make in order to uh, open up some cap space? How will they make that work? Um, but uh, still a while to go before something like that may or may not happen. Uh, it's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We'll close out Canuck Central next on Sportsnet 650. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Bruff in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.